Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. In the summer of 1987, aged 15, I sat myself down at the piano in Dublin's Trocadero restaurant and struck up a jaunty, if callow, rendition of Cole Porter's Let's Fall in Love. So began my career as Ireland's youngest barfly pianist and nine years of interrupting people's dinners. Equipped as I then was, with only ten tunes, my stint at the truck was understandably short-lived. After all, no matter how lovely Let's Fall in Love might be, the prospect of birds, bees and even educated fleas doing it at half-hour intervals proved too much for all but the most indulgent, drunk or deaf diners. I was gently let go after a month or so, and resolved to expand my skimpy setlist. The following summer, now a hardened 16-year-old pro, with repertoire significantly enhanced, my career as a cocktail piano teen sensation really took off. No diner in Dublin was safe from me. From Barrels on Grafton Street, to Whites on the Green, Sparks to La Stampa, Coopers to San Marino, I played them all. A heady mix of Gershwin, Porter, Irving Berlin, Patsy Cline, Tom Waits, The Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, and that most dismaying of monikers, light classical. In time, my left hand developed a life of its own, entirely independent of the rest of me, and perfectly capable of continuing its ba ba stride pattern, while the rest of me chatted to customers, smoked cigarettes, or took the occasional phone call. While playing in Wright's Brasserie, on the Monkstown Gold Coast. I struck up a friendship with the older, more sophisticated and, frankly, better piano player, Terry O'Donovan. He was the son of Harry O'Donovan, who had been the comedy partner of Jimmy O'D in countless pantomimes and music hall reviews from the 1920s to the 60s. Terry seemed to know every tune ever written by anyone anywhere. He played a few doors up from Wright's in Cooper's Bistro, which seemed to me to have a more agreeably louche ambiance than the more formal rites. If a diner asked me to play a tune I'd never heard of, let's call it, Oh Mother, My Heart Yearns For You Still, I would stall them, nip out the door, and run up the few doors to Cooper's. Terry, I'd wheeze, play me, Oh Mother, My Heart Yearns For You Still. And Terry, like a prototype human Alexa, would bash out the tune. When it was sufficiently on my ear, I would run back down to rights and play a vague facsimile to the delighted, if bemused, customer. On occasion, this cocktail piano business could prove highly lucrative for a young hustler. One evening, I came home with, for then, the stupendous sum of £80, having engaged in a drawn-out, coquettish game with a tired and emotional customer. Would you play Martha by Tom Waits? He drawled. Oh, but I really must be getting home, I replied. My poor mother will start to worry herself to death. Another ten-pound note fluttered down onto the piano. Oh, I suppose one more tune wouldn't hurt. Operator number, please. It's been so many years. Those were indeed days of roses. The poor man must have woken up the next morning, his sore head as full of tunes as his wallet was empty, and wondered what the hell happened last night. During those years, I continued my musical studies at Trinity College and the Royal Irish Academy of Music. 
At that time, neither institution proved especially susceptible to the charms of lightly swinging standards. On one occasion at the Academy, I briefly interrupted my tussle with Franz Liszt's Mephisto waltz to play a few bars of boogie. Suddenly the door of the practice room flew open and Nan, the fierce and tiny custodian of the front desk, stormed in and furiously banged the lid of the piano shut. None of that, she growled, none of that. As the years rolled by, I took my bag of tunes to Paris, briefly, Amsterdam, more lengthily, and finally to London, where I found myself playing in the lobby of the oh-so-swanky Royal Garden Hotel in Kensington. By this time, however, the fun had worn down somewhat. No longer a teen, let alone a sensation, I was by now a most serious pianist, whose thunderous, tortured Scriabin piano sonatas were just not what the assorted visiting pop stars and Sloan Rangers sipping their white wine wanted to hear. By the end of the evening, I would be reduced to glassily arpeggiating up and down the piano, with barely a discernible tune to be heard among the listless flourishes. Ultimately, when the choice came down to an offer of six months playing in a Bangkok hotel, or participating in the Dublin International Piano Competition, the angel on my shoulder guided me home to Dublin, and I brought the curtain down on my career as a now-aging cocktail piano teen sensation. However, in a parallel universe somewhere, I like to imagine there is a rumpled middle-aged man in a crumpled white linen suit, still sitting at a white grand piano in the foyer of the Bangkok Marriott and, cigarette clenched between his yellowing teeth, launching just one more time into Cole Porter's Let's Fall in Love. It is a truth universally acknowledged, or at least by me, that the most interesting newspaper articles are in the pages that you're rolling up to light the fire, or the pages that you're cleaning yesterday's fire ashes onto, or the pages that you're putting the smelly remnants from the fridge into prior to composting. Fifty years ago, lighting the fire for my grandfather was a slow process because there was always something interesting in the papers I was supposed to be rolling into bowls. So a job that should have taken ten minutes could take forty. And even when the fire was lit, another sheet of newspaper might be used. If the fire was a bit slow, I would do what my parents did, place a double sheet over the hole of the fire opening so that a draft would be created underneath. This was always a bit risky, especially if I found an article on the same sheet. If, while I was reading, the fire came on too quickly, it might ignite said paper, and in the midst of my resulting panic, I might lose the whole article for good, not to mention singe my eyebrows. Back then, of course, we didn't talk of recycling, but we still used newspapers in diverse ways after it had served its primary purpose of informing us. 
where liquid had been spilt, or if someone was going to get sick, the newspaper on the floor was your only man. A rolled-up newspaper was, and still is, useful for swatting blue bottles. At Christmas time, we pulled off hunks from the stale loaf of bread and rolled them between our hands over a sheet of newspaper until we had a pile of breadcrumbs for the stuffing. It was a deeply satisfying process that left your hands feeling soft and cared for. The pile of breadcrumbs, it always seemed to me, felt like the ambergris that Melville wrote about in Moby Dick. Before I began to read the paper, and perhaps even before I could read at all, the daily paper also provided a little blank space on the bottom right-hand corner of the front page. The heading was Late News, and if there was no late news, my siblings and I would use those few square inches for drawing. How different from today when you can buy a ream of paper for little more than the price of a single newspaper. But supposing you had as much paper as you wanted, but you didn't dare write on it. Such was the case with Anna Akhmatova when she wrote one of her most famous poems, A Requiem. The poem is a kind of a requiem for Russia itself, and for its ordinary people like Anna herself, who suffered starvation, imprisonment and exile, particularly in the Stalinist era. It begins this way. You were taken away at dawn. I followed you as one does when a corpse is being removed. Children were crying in the darkened house. A candle flared, illuminating the mother of God. The cold of an icon was on your lips, a death-cold sweat on your brow. I will never forget this. I will gather to wail with the wives of the murdered Strelsey, inconsolably, beneath the Kremlin Towers. She wrote Requiem in the 30s, but actually she didn't write the poem, she composed it. In the paranoia of Stalinist Russia, she was afraid to commit the poem to paper. Instead, she asked 12 of her women friends to learn parts of it off by heart, and when she revised it as poets do, she went back to those friends and got them to delete lines and add other lines, all without committing anything to paper. One of their number used Roman numerals in an effort to make a more memorable print on her memory. And those Roman numerals have survived in the PDF version on the internet today. It's worth reading. More recently, a young poet and mother was asked why her poems were invariably short. Her response was simple. There was no time to write while she attended to her children so she had to remember the lines until evening when the children were in bed. Her memory had an upper limit of 20 lines or so. William Wordsworth is said to have composed a whole of Tintern Abbey while out on the walk described in the poem. Dorothy tells us that he didn't put pen to paper until he got back to the house. I wonder, though, how good was his memory? And was the written version exactly the same as the one he composed on foot? And how was he off for paper? We shall never know.
1997, I decided, if not quite on a whim, then on whatever the first cousin of a whim is, to move to London. After aimlessly temping for a while, I got a job at the BBC. My office was on the seventh floor of a 16-storey building called Henry Wood House. A lumpen 1960s monstrosity, its only redeeming feature was the amazing view across West London from the roof terrace of the hotel at the top. I worked in internal communications. It wasn't an exciting job or an important one, just the sort of admin position which, despite the late 90s being hailed as the new age of digital technology, remained stubbornly analogue. Next door was Broadcasting House, the BBC's beautiful Art Deco home. Some of my favourite Radio 4 programmes were made there, including Just a Minute, the longest-running panel show in the world. So, eager as a child hoping to be picked by the teacher to run a message, I jumped at every chance to check out what was happening elsewhere in the BBC. One week, swinging a visit to the studio where the Today programme was broadcast, the next, touring the Radio 1 office with a music scheduler, where I had a sneaky sit-down at John Peel's desk. Peel wasn't there, needless to say. He didn't come in until the afternoons, the scheduler explained in an awed voice. A lanyard, I realised, is like a high-vis vest. Both confer an unspecified validity to your presence while simultaneously rendering you almost invisible. With a manila folder tucked under my arm for extra camouflage, exploring the corridors of Broadcasting House while supposedly running an errand became one of my favourite things to do. One morning, I had to deliver a CD containing a PowerPoint presentation, yes, I know, but like I said, 1997, to the chief executive's lair. On the way back, I wandered down a quiet corridor. It was summer, the air was warm and stuffy. I spotted a door neatly labelled Letter from America. Written and presented by Alistair Cook, Letter from America was a programme I'd listened to for years because my dad was a fan, but I'd never thought of it having an actual office. A letterbox, perhaps. I picture myself knocking, trying the handle to see if the door is unlocked, but I know I did neither of these things. Just shyly walked on. Lancashire-born Cook lived most of his adult life in the States. In 1946, he wrote to the BBC, proposing a weekly personal letter to a Briton by a fireside about American life and people and places in the American news. Beginning a month later, he went on to record almost 3,000 15-minute broadcasts. Hundreds of episodes are available online, as are scripts, now held by Boston University Library. Long before the 24-7 news cycle, or indeed the relentless social media spin cycle, the role of the foreign correspondent was to be the brave, curious stand-in for all of us. Cook's vivid descriptions use small, recognisable details as hinges to prise open bigger stories. He spoke about Bloody Sunday in 1972 and O.J. Simpson's trial in 1994, about Roe v. Wade in 1973 and the early days of television in 1951. Recently, I listened to his 1968 eyewitness account of the assassination of Bobby Kennedy in Los Angeles. In the Ambassador Hotel, Cook didn't realise the racket was shots, not at first. It was more of a banging repetition, the sound, perhaps, of a stack of trays dropping to the floor. But then, he said, down on the greasy floor was a huddle of clothes, and staring out of it, the face of Bobby Kennedy, like the stone face of a child lying on a cathedral tomb.
Long-running programmes like Letter from America tell us things about ourselves, about the world around us and its changes, some so infinitesimally small as to be barely visible, others so fast as to be frightening. By examining the lives of people who are strangers to us, they provide clues as to who we are or who we might become, for good and bad. The final letter from America was broadcast on February 20, 2004. Cook was 95. He died that March. Later it was revealed that his body was one of several from whom bones had been illegally removed to be sold for bone grafts. A grave-robbing scandal I can't help but think he'd have wanted to write about. After nearly 60 years of his company and humane, clear-eyed reporting, Cook's death left listeners bereft. But we still have that archive. There's a 1977 letter I like where Cook is talking about his old friend Bing Crosby and a revealing interview Bing gave not long before he died. Cook is talking about his friend here and how Bing dealt with fame, but still, I can't help feeling, he gives us a little glimpse of himself in it. And Bing said, Sure, that's about it. I have no deep thoughts, no profound philosophy. That's right, I guess that's what I am. It was so startling, so honest, and probably so true that it explained why he'd been able through hard times to stay on an even keel. Why, because he didn't over-identify with other people's troubles, he was able to appear and to be everybody's easy-going buddy. And because death is so profound, and so dramatic, so showy. That's why some of us cannot believe he won't show up in the locker room tomorrow and say, Well, Skipper, how's tricks? The mailman passes by And I just wonder why he never ever rings my front doorbell. There's not a single line from that dear old love of mine. No, not a word since I last heard farewell. I'm standing below the harbour wall on Inishmore the largest of the three Aran Islands. I'm in my priest's collar and holding a microphone attached to a small sound system. I can see a few other clergymen and nuns sitting here too or kicking a football back and forth on a makeshift soccer pitch. A bare-chested man with a towel around his waist and carrying a car bonnet under his arm chats to three girls who are dressed as peanuts. I'm here to commentate on the five-a-side football final at TEDFest the festival for Father Ted fanatics that takes place annually on this island. The flight took me 10 minutes from Air Aran Airport in Inverin, Connemara. As we descended on the island, it struck me that it felt very like the opening credits of Father Ted. Except we didn't see the ruined shipwreck, which is actually on Inish Ear, the second largest Aran island. In fact, none of Father Ted, the most popular sitcom on Irish TV history, was shot on Inish Moor. 
the fictional Craggy Island Parish was primarily shot in County Clare, around the town of Ennistymon, but it seems fitting that the festival should take place on an island, and that it should be in early spring, when crossings from the mainland by air or sea are precarious. It's a sight to behold a ferry full of Bishop Brennan's, Mrs Doyle's, Neve Connolly's and Pat Mustard's on a rough crossing, looking on as a Father Ted is comforting a Father Dougal getting sick over the edge of the boat. I've attended the festival on and off over the years because I played Father Damo on the show over 25 years ago. Damo steals a whistle in one episode and has the mind of a 12-year-old. He loves playing football and video games and when his parish priest, Father Frost, calls him in for tea, he shouts at him grumpily, I'll be in in a minute! A phrase that I have had shouted at me many times over the years. At times I've tried to distance myself from Father Ted out of embarrassment at being known for a one-off character. But because I am also a stand-up comedian and can bring more to an event than just a costume, I'm one of a few actors who are called whenever a Father Ted event is taking place. Father Ted is a parody and homage to an Ireland that is gone but is still in our DNA. The cups of tea, the town hall raffle, the amateur local broadcaster, the haphazard funfair. It seems to resonate with all of us, from the dyed-in-the-wool culture to the second-generation Irish in the UK. Today is unusually sunny and warm for February so many attendees have hired bicycles to explore the island. Still dressed as nuns, priests and bishops, they wandered through a landscape of silent stone walls and oblivious sheep. A tourist would be forgiven for thinking they'd stumbled upon a pilgrimage where the religious come for a weekend of contemplative prayer. Back at the Aran Islands Hotel, the serenity is broken by the loud chatter of patrons swilling early morning pints. Owen McLove, played by Patrick MacDonald, is hosting the blind date competition in a bizarre, off-the-wall slapstick universe that has its own logic. That's what Craggy Island embodies, a place where nothing major happens, so what does happen becomes major, whether that be the upgrading of a holy relic, a lookalikes competition, or the stealing of a whistle. The brilliant Dermot Morgan, who so tragically passed away as a young man, starred as Father Ted in the 90s, long before comedy was populated by serious young men who mapped out their jokes like their careers. Dermot and a well of up-and-coming comedic talent came together in a perfect combination with writers Arthur Matthews and Graham Linehan as they mined the mundanity of Irish life for comedic diamonds at a time when Ireland was ready to laugh at itself. I blow my whistle and the football match begins. It's chaotic and unruly. The players are not taking this seriously, luckily, as the referee is handing out random yellow and red cards purely because she doesn't like the cut of someone or because one side deserves a chance to score. We are all children again, making up the rules, getting distracted, letting our emotions rule and laughing uncontrollably. Getting dressed up is what sets us free. We are no longer ourselves, so everything is up for grabs. We are following our spirit Father Ted character. Which one are you? Revel Neve Connolly, rude Owen MacLove, or silent Father Stone? After a frantic half-hour of whistle-blowing, penalties, cheering, booing, award ceremonies, speeches and photographs, we scarper up the steps from the strand before the tide comes in. 
and head back to the Inishmore Hotel for tea and sandwiches with Peter, the organiser of this festival. Outside the hotel, I'm stopped for countless selfies. As Peter heads into the hotel, I shout over to him, I'll be in in a minute. Beasts roam through the streets and coffee shops. Their prey gather in herds of stiff knee length skirts and white ankle socks. But while they search for a mate, my type hibernate in bedrooms above. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn the dissident Russian writer, lost his citizenship and was forced to flee the Soviet Union in 1976, he settled in America into a wooded retreat in New England. This US state enjoys golden autumns and cold winters. It seemed to represent the best substitute for the land from which he'd come, his beloved mother Russia. In this new environment, he turned his back on home and reluctantly adopted his alternative place of residence. In his novel One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisevich, Solzhenitsyn describes conditions in a typical Arctic penal gulag. Political prisoners incarcerated in these forced labour camps struggled daily to survive privation, alienation and most of all the inhuman cold of the Arctic Circle. The novel opens as a new day begins and we read that Denisevich has woken up feeling unwell. Because he has arisen late, he is forced to clean the guardhouse. But this is a comparatively minor punishment. When he goes to the dispensary to report his illness, Ivan is told he must work. The rest of the novel deals mainly with the labours he and his fellow prisoners perform in hope of getting extra food for good results. They are seen working at a brutal construction site where the cold freezes the mortar if not applied quickly enough. Solzhenitsyn details the methods used by the prisoners to survive. The whole camp lives by the rule of day-to-day survival. No one looks any further into their blighted future other than into the next hour. Solzhenitsyn writes how prisoners would volunteer to cut and split the wood required to heat the prison kitchens. This unheard of sacrifice in an environment where the instincts for personal self-preservation were all that mattered. He explains how these excursions to the log pile in the glimmer of a Russian dawn seemed to awaken the philosopher in those partaking in the task. The repetitive action of sawing and chopping the gradual heating up of the body through strenuous physical effort had the effect of clearing the mind of extraneous clutter and focusing on greater existential questions concerning the meaning of freedom and life and truth. These were political prisoners who had lost everything, their homes, their families, their careers, their dignity as well as their freedom. They were used to serving harsh sentences and even when they survived the 10 or 15 year terms of pronouncement, it was not unusual to find that some excuse or other had been engineered to add a further similar term to the original judgment. It was a living nightmarish hell 
And yet these men came to realize that when all is lost, when all has been stripped from you and taken away, what remains is a sense of true, unfettered liberation. In his book, Solzhenitsyn describes how with their breath fogging the frozen air, two prisoners on opposite sides of a resinous log entered into the singing rhythm of the cross-cut saw and thus became united in their labour. In some perverse way, the bonds of capture fused their hearts rather than broke them. They exulted in the purity of effort that created a snowstorm of sawdust on the toe caps of their boots and released the clean tang of pine resin into their nostrils. This scene made a great impression on me when I read it for the first time. I grew up in a house where the open fire was the provider of heat, cooking and comfort. To feed the flames beneath the juggle of pots and pans, it was necessary to work on the log pile all year round. Thus I became acquainted with the mechanics of both the saw and the hatchet at an early age. I learned to select the cleanest wood for ease of splitting, to avoid knots and to swing the axe high. I came to understand that there is something very satisfying about the rhythm of bending, selecting and balancing a cleanly sawn log and with one almighty swing, sundering it into two flying halves. To see a log pile that has been built into balanced symmetry is to witness a piece of installation art. I have been known to stop and photograph stacked log piles in Canada and New England in the glorious fall of the year delighting in the ordered beauty of the cords of wood and imagining glowing stoves and hearts in cold northern climates. Solzhenitsyn found it difficult to settle into what he considered were somewhat tame New England winters. His heart was forever with Mother Russia, even though she had attempted to destroy him. In 1994, he returned home into a political landscape that he hoped had changed for the better. Alexander Izeevich Solzhenitsyn died in his Russia in 2008. Seasons come and seasons go, but it seems that some things never change, particularly when those things exist within the savage grasp of Russia's Arctic Circle. Firelight, the quiet heart of a little room Out of the night we'll come Where the gathered gloom hangs softly still The poet Elizabeth Bishop painted as a hobby, and in these paintings stoves recur again and again. Elizabeth Bishop's Stove Not home, but a symbol of home, moving from the corners inward with watercolour and gouache. It was the free hand chose this, transformer of the dull kitchen to a warming room far from the storm bell's erratic clang. 
Too much to lift alone, and yet it turns up in each new geography. The wood-burning stove in Minas, the Boston hearth. Possible only in the still-moving world. On this morning's programme, we heard Cocktail Piano Teen Sensation by Connor Linehan. Paper by Michael O'Connor. A Letter to Letter from America by Henrietta McCurvey. Ted Fest by Joe Rooney. Deadly Cold by Joe Carney. And Elizabeth Bishop's Stove, a poem by Grace Willents. The music was Cole Porter's Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love, played on piano by Connor Linehan. A traditional Ukrainian lullaby sung by the Nightingale Trio. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter sung by Bing Crosby, and that was preceded by the voice of Alistair Cook in an extract from a BBC letter from America from 1977. Songs of Love by The Divine Comedy and Firelight by Salthouse. Conor Lenehan's performance of Let's Do It was recorded specially for Sunday Miscellany and sound supervision was by Tom Norton. And this year's TED Fest, mentioned in Joe Rooney's script, takes place from Thursday the 7th to Sunday the 10th of March. See tedfest.org for details. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can find more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or to the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.